Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. On your handout, various passages misused by Calvinists, I'm going to do a short passage and uh, it's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. That's on the front page of that handout I gave you. And uh, again, what, what are we dealing with when we're dealing with Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 3? We're dealing with the idea that the Calvinists believe that we're so totally depraved that we cannot respond to God's call of salvation. So therefore, we do not possess freedom. Now, the Calvinists will say, no, you do possess freedom. But you're only free to act according to your nature, they'll say. And so they'll say that, you know, just like an animal is only free to act like an animal, then a human being is only free to act according to his nature. And his nature is a sin nature. And that, unfortunately, has been misconstrued about the sin nature, and it is totally wrong. Even though we possess a sin nature, we do have freedom. Just because we have a sin nature does not eliminate freedom or free will. They say it does. See, and that's the problem of Calvinists. It makes the person nothing but a robot that is a slave to their sin nature. And I get it. The Bible does support that we are a slave to the sin nature, but it allows for freedom even though we possess it, even though we're a slave of sin. And so I want to unpack that and show you that even though we have a sin nature, we still have the ability to choose, that the person who is a slave to sin can recognize that they're a slave to sin and want out of the prison. So see, the Calvinists, if you use a metaphor, believe that the believer is in a prison. And that's true. We are in a prison. And we were born in this prison. And since you were born in this prison, you don't know what the outside world is like, they say. And that's true. We don't. We were, before we come to Christ, we're in a prison, and we don't even know we're in the prison. That's true. But they say because we don't know anything outside the, uh, the prison, then we cannot make decisions. We just know what the prison is. And, and so, therefore... Um, we actually have to be let out of the prison, in their terms, made born again, and then you can recognize that you were in prison. But what we're trying to say is, no, you can be born in this prison and not know what the outside world is like, but then someone can come and visit me and tell me that there's another world that can tell me the way of escape, that can tell me what the outside world is like, and then... As a prisoner, I could accept that, that what this person is telling me is true, or I can reject it. I could just say, no, this is the prison, and I've always known the prison, and I'm going to stay here. Or I can accept the person says, no, there's another world outside. I have the keys to be able to let you out if you believe in me. And so we believe that the Bible, in the metaphor, teaches, yes, we're born in a prison, but when someone comes and tells you how to escape and that there's another world, then you have the freedom to make that choice. And that would be through divine revelation, right? And the divine revelation is the word of God. 
How does faith come? Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if the word of God comes to you, even though you're in bondage, even though you're a slave to sin, even though you're in prison, a spiritual prison that you were born into, if someone comes and tells you how to escape, you have the ability to recognize that and accept that. That's what the Bible's teaching. So this is the fundamental difference between Calvinism and free will. They do not believe people have free will. Okay, so for instance, when we read a passage like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, they will read into the text stuff that's not there. So first, let's read that. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, again, the first thing you have to realize is how to translate the word dead properly. In the Calvinist mindset, they interpret dead as a corpse. So their classic illustration is to link dead to Lazarus. And they'll say, see, Lazarus couldn't even respond because he's dead. He's dead. He can't respond to anything. He's dead like Lazarus. So they equate spiritual deadness to physical deadness. Whereas a physical body can't respond and a body-soul unity cannot respond at all anyway. They're dead. That right there is a classic mistake of Calvinism. That is a Greek way or a Western way of understanding deadness. But the Hebraic way of understanding deadness is what? Separation, alienation. And the parable that suits the best way to explain deadness is the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that? Let me ask you about the prodigal son. When he comes back, his father says something about him. Because the brothers, the older brother is ticked off. Remember that whole thing? He says, it is right to celebrate because your brother was dead and now is alive. Ah, that's Hebraic. So deadness represented that the brother, or sorry, the younger brother who took his inheritance was separated from the family. He was alienated from the family because he wanted to live the way he wanted to live. Hence, he was dead to his father and separated from his father. So anytime you see deadness in Scripture, the Hebraic way of understanding deadness is separation. So now when you interpret the passage in the Hebraic understanding, and you were separated, okay? So what's the next word? In. So when you see the word in... It's, it's referring to a sphere, a sphere of operation. And you were separated, obviously, from God in a sphere that you were in. You operated in a circle or a sphere how you operated your life. And in that sphere, it was you sinning and trespassing, which caused the spiritual deadness or the spiritual alienation or separateness, if you're following. So the in, like when we say we're in Christ, we're in the sphere of the Messiah's blessings and protection and, and all of that being in the body of Christ, all those blessings, we're in that sphere. 
or you can be in the sphere of grace, or you can be in the sphere of works. So the sphere of alienated and being separate from God is here, and what connotates that sphere is sin and trespass. So that when I was an unbeliever and I was sinning and trespassing, I operated in this sphere. And so now I've been saved, I've actually been removed from this sphere. So notice what it says, sin and trespass. What's the difference? There is a difference between a sin and a trespass. You could, so in this sphere, you operated in both is what he's saying, and both of them got you separated from God. So what is sin compared to a trespass? A trespass is a violation of a known law. Okay? Thou shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? That is a known law. You violate it. You have now trespassed. But let me ask you this. Did Adam and Eve sin before they trespassed? They trespassed. There's no doubt about that. But did they sin before they trespassed? Yes, they did. They had to have. Because it started in their heart. The trespass is the physical act of crossing a barrier. And it could be a, 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 you know, a spiritual crossing of a barrier, obviously. But thou shall not steal is different than I want to take something. Right? It is the attitude is where it started in sinning for Adam and Eve. You can become like a god. When she saw that the fruit was pleasing, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, all three sins were involved prior to her eating and trespassing. So yes, Adam and Eve sinned, or at least, uh, uh, and Adam did too, but when you're just focusing on Eve, she sinned before she uh, transgressed. And so you and I, whether we knew the law or not, we're sinning, we're in sin because we chose to do our own way. We chose to do our own path, just like Adam and Eve did. And so that caused sin in our lives, whether you know it or not. And eventually we became old enough to realize, wait, there's certain things that God says that are, that are off limits, and then we knowingly trespass those things as well. So in this sphere, you operate in sin and trespass, both are there. So a sin will alienate you just as much as a trespass will do. Why does he have to point that out? Because really, people think a lot of times, and you can see this with the Pharisees, that just outwardly sinning is what separated people. But Jesus said, no, 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 it's what's going on in the heart. You're sinning in your heart, right? So you, yeah, you haven't murdered somebody, thou shalt not murder, but then you violate it in a sin of your heart when you hate somebody, right? So he showed you both aspects of sin and trespass. Okay, it is the sin and trespass that actually separates you from God in the passage. So that's important to understand. Why? Because the Calvinists say that it is your, how do I want to put this? that you're being alienated from God without a conscious decision per se. So like a baby in their minds, even though the baby has a sin nature, is damned. Okay? We wouldn't say that. But they would. Some of them would. And inconsistent Calvinists would say no. But they would say that baby 
if it dies without coming to faith in Christ, is going to hell. A consistent five-point Calvinist will say that. And we talked about this before. So they believe that what alienates the person is the spiritual disposition that the baby has. Okay? But in this passage, Paul is saying, what has separated you from God? Sin and trespasses. Okay? So a baby, you couldn't charge a baby with sin because the child doesn't even know to go its own way. Right? Doesn't know to be in rebellion and do its own thing. It doesn't even have any conscious recognition of that. Nor does a mentally handicapped person have that. And therefore, the, and then a baby wouldn't know a trespass either. But yet the Calvinists want to hold the child responsible. But what we're trying, trying to say is the Bible does not teach that you're condemned for having a sin nature. The Bible teaches that you and I are condemned for committing sin and trespass. That's why we're going to go to hell if we don't come to faith in Christ, is that everyone has done that. And so even in this passage, it militates, even though they use this passage to substantiate total total depravity, it militates against it. It is not saying that just because you are separated from God in sin and trespass, it's not saying that you cannot reach back to him or you can't make a decision for him. It doesn't say that. So they're adding stuff to the passage. And then he explains this in more detail, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. So basically, you were walking, so when you decide to sin, you start walking with the world. You don't walk with God, you walk in your activities with the world, and the world's controlled by Satan, obviously. According to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, the spirit of lawlessness. So when you're in that sphere of sin and trespass, you're going to be controlled by these three other factors. You're going to be controlled by the system, by the world, by Satan in those things, whether you know it or not. And they're going to cause you to sin more. And how so? He says, verse 3, Among we two all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, see, the Calvinists will say, see, we're children of wrath, and so everybody's born as a child of wrath, and so um, that's why children and babies go to hell. And wait a second, what did verse 1 say? How do you become a child of wrath? By sin and trespass. Not by being born. Because if you're going to say that you're condemned as a, a baby, then you might as well go to the Catholic Church because that's why they started infant baptism, is to take away original sin. And that's not what the Scriptures are teaching. It's not saying that a baby's born with original sin and will be condemned, and if it, it dies, the, the Catholic Church says, you know, you go to limbo or purgatory or whatever. That's, that's totally foreign to the Bible. We are children of wrath, as long as we remain in the state of sin and trespass, as long as we remain in this sphere that Paul is talking about. So the question then becomes, can you escape this sphere? And let me ask you this. We know that everybody in this room cannot call the president. Okay? You know that, right? You just can't pick up a phone and call the president. Okay? Even though you might want to tell people off, tell Kamala off, I guess, and whatever. Um, 
You can't. But let me ask you this. If the president called you, let's say it's Trump. Let's get Biden out of the thing. So let's go back a year. And let's say if Trump was to call you and they say, hey, Brandon, President Trump wants to talk to you. He's on the line. Could you reject that call or accept that call? Yes, you could. Okay. So we're not saying that you can call the president, but we're saying that the president is making a call to you and you have a choice of whether you're going to answer the phone or not and take his call. And if it's Biden's calling, you may not take the call, right? I mean, or Kamala, you say, I don't want to talk to them. I'd rather talk to the, the plumber than, uh, than him, man. I mean, this, Biden's crazy. Okay, the point is, even though I'm in the sphere of sin and trespass, I still can receive a call from the president, a la a call from God, so to speak. I'm using that as a metaphor. And so God reaches out to those who are trapped in this prison of sin and trespass and says, there's a way out. Do you want to accept the call? See, the Calvinists say you can't even pick up the phone. You can't even say yes. You're dead in sin. You can't respond. You're a corpse. And so God has to go in there and regenerate you, and then you can believe. What we're saying is dead is separate, separateness and that even though I am in this sphere, if someone talks to me and says, there's a way out of that, do you want out of it? We're saying that the Bible, as you can see in these passages, says, yes, you can pick up that call. You can reject the call or you can accept it. It's your choice. You can stay in the prison or you can get out. That's what these passages are trying to show you. But yet, it's the funny thing is they're using the very passages that militate against them. Isn't it funny? So, like, go down, skip down. We'll study this a little bit more. But go to Romans 3, 10 through 12 real quick on your, on your list. This is another famous passage they will use for irresistible grace, making you born again before you have faith. It says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, there is none righteous, not even one. Okay, we would all agree with that. But what does it mean to the Calvinist? It means for them that there is none righteous, not even one. It's for them, they're reading into it that no one, no one can respond to God. That to be totally depraved in their mind is that they are they have an inability to respond to the call. Because no one is righteous. But what does Paul mean when he says no one is righteous? What is he trying to refer? Is he trying to say because no one is righteous, they can't respond to salvation's call? No. His argument in Romans is the law. And what is the argument against the law? You cannot keep the law for righteousness. Law-keeping will not gain you righteousness. That's been his theme. So when he says in Romans 310, none is righteous, not even one. He is saying no one is able to keep the law perfectly. They can't keep it like Messiah did. And so hence, they have no righteousness from that. And then he says, there is no one who understands. And the Calvinists will say, see, unbelievers can't even understand. Even if the gospel is presented to them, they can't understand unless God makes them born again to understand. Well, what do you mean that no one understands? Well, it has to do with spiritual ignorance. 
that the masses of humanity are ignorant. But, as we have talked about, if masses of humanity respond to general revelation, then what will happen? Then they'll get special revelation. So yes, we totally agree that humanity out there is spiritually ignorant until they respond to general revelation. And if they respond to that, then special revelation will make them unignorant. It will give them the information they need. So this idea that no one understands doesn't mean that people just, you know, can't respond. They can respond when the information is presented to them. And that's what the Calvinists leave out. And it says, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. That's true uh, in a spiritual way. Everyone that's an unbeliever is useless to God. They're, not, they're, they're doing nothing for his program. And there is none who does good. There is not even one. But let's back up. There's none that seek for God. Let's talk about that one real quick. None that seek for God. We agree. But let me ask you this. It's like the president. If God says, I seek that which is lost, I command all to be saved. He's seeking every, he, he wants all to be saved. So God is actively seeking people. We agree that God has to initiate the call. So what does it mean that no one seeks? Yes, no one takes the initiative on their own to seek God. But God is taking the initiative to seek everybody. And once he puts out the call to everybody, then can you respond? Can you seek God after he seeks you? Yes, because Acts 17 says that he's not far from any one of us and he is close to us and, 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 and seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be open to you. So once God seeks us and he has to everybody, you can seek him back. So see, they say, well, no, you can never seek him back. He's got to make you born again and then you have to be, you'll be saved and then you can seek him. It's like, no. Why would he tell unbelievers to seek him? Why is that even a command? If they can't do something, why would he command it? Seek and you will find. That's a command. If you look for me, you'll find me. Though he's not far from any one of us, he says. So what you start realizing is, once you unpack these passages, is that Calvinists are playing a game. They're reading into the text stuff that's not there. And the texts, in context, actually militate against Calvinism and show you that, oh, just because it says this doesn't imply that. And so the Calvinists do a spiritual leapfrog. They jump from here to this conclusion, and they're typically wrong on their conclusions because they're reading into the text. So I don't know. I, I wanted to state that before we go any further. So let me see if there's any questions on that. Does that kind of all kind of make sense a little bit? Well, I think as you, you understand conviction, they probably were convicted early on, but if you continue in error, you actually get calloused and you can't feel it anymore. And they'll, they'll die on the hill for this one. Um, uh, you know, Calvinists become very arrogant after a while. They think they know it all. But that's because of, of, of callousness in, in suppressing the truth. The Romans 1, we talked about Romans 1 about society, but can a believer suppress the truth? Oh, yeah. So guess what? If a believer suppresses the truth, then what does Romans say? Oh. Oh, wait a second. I thought that was for unbelievers. No, no, no. It's for anyone who suppresses the truth. Anyone. So you mean that if a Christian suppresses the truth long enough, 
their minds will get darkened? Yes. You mean they'll start developing a depraved mind? Yes. That's what Romans says. So that's why when you see Christians commit heinous crimes or heinous things out in public, and you're like, I can't believe that guy's doing that. And, and a lot of people would just pun it to like the Calvin and say, well, I guess the guy's not even saved. But that's true. He might not be. He might not be. But what if the guy is? Well, if the guy is saved, then I would reserve the category he has a Romans 1 mind because he's been suppressing the truth. And therefore, they start losing their minds. And they get into sexual immorality. Guys, I use the example. Look at, look at the Falwells. How, how far do you have to get down the line to allow your wife to have sex with the, with the pool guy and you're watching? How far do you have to go down the line? That's Romans 1. Now, it could be very well stated that the guy's an unbeliever, alright? Okay. But if he is a believer, then you can see that the Romans one depraved mind took hold, right? To get to that level, you got to be pretty messed up. I'm not down, and if he professes Christ, he might have got saved when he was 12. Let me ask you this, just to make clarification. Though. If you profess Christ, or come to faith in Christ, I should say, when you're 12, and you believe, is that enough to be saved? Or do you have to keep believing Believe, and you will have everlasting life. So if I'm in my 50s or 40s or 30s or whatever, and all of a sudden I, I get into rampant sin like the fall wells, or I get into very heinous things, um, have I stopped believing? I'm not, yeah, yeah, you, you're not trusting, you're, you're apostatizing, immoral, you're, you're, when you're in immorality, you've stopped trusting. And so there was a great book, um, and I think it's um, entitled Unbelieving Believers. Unbelieving Believers. So it, the Bible recognizes the fact that positionally, at a point in time, a person can come to faith in Christ, exercise that faith, be convinced that what Christ says is true, trust these are all words. Be convinced that something's true. Trust. Come to faith, whatever you want to call it, and get saved at that moment. That secures the person for the rest of their life. It is a position that gets established at that point in time. And that's forever. That position can never be taken away. It's a position that's a, a one-time decision. It's not a continual decision, right? Because if not, you could lose your salvation. So it is very possible for a believer to stop believing, and not ultimately in God, but ultimately in areas of their life where they just start letting go. They start letting go. I don't believe this. I don't believe that. I don't believe gay marriage is wrong. I don't believe abortion is wrong. And they stop believing aspects of the Christianity. And I think that's what starts happening to people that are apostatizing or get into this gross immorality that we're talking about tonight is that they just stop believing for certain things about God, and they start pulling back. And that causes a disaster, right, Dennis? Yeah, but the context of that is false teachers. He's not talking about believers. So when he says they were not of us, he's referring to false teachers, not regular believers. Yeah, this is where the discernment comes in. I mean, the grace and truth thing is if you have an interpersonal relationship, like it's an uncle, it's an aunt, and you have this long-term thing, you're going to have to exchange, 
extend grace before truth. But like if we're in El Salvador on a mission trip, I need you to be doing truth all the time. Because you're not going to establish a relationship going door to door, right? And so it's just about boom, boom, boom. And that's how you work on a mission field. You've got to get the gospel out. So you have to reverse the order due to the situation. Now, when you're dealing with a believer, it depends on their attitude. Are they repentant? I'll give them grace. I'll give them humility. If they're resistant, I'm what, to, I'm what, I'm what am I supposed to do? I give them truth. And I pound them hard with the truth. Hard, hard, hard. The more they resist me, the more I see the pride in them, the more they rebel against the truth, I'm going to just keep pounding it and pounding it and pounding it. Now, I will have enough discernment to know when to back off because I'm not going to cast pearls before swine, but I'm going to say what I need to say and then back off and just leave it at that. Don't keep repeating yourself. Just say what you need to say and then back off. Okay. Yes. And then go back there. So you have to reserve the categories. So let's take this scenario, they never were saved. Okay, that's a category. Matthew 7, I never knew you, right? So that's possible, right? But that's where Calvinists leave it. They leave it in just that category. Well, they just never were saved. And I think the Bible gives more categories, obviously. And the other category is then, well, they weren't discipled properly. For someone to go into that lifestyle meant probably they didn't have a good discipleship in their church or in their house or the family. So they weren't raised properly in discipleship. So they're a baby. And the, the worst thing about baby Christians is they're easily swayed by false doctrine. That could be the situation. She's just immature, didn't know any better. The other one is knowing they're in active rebellion and they know what they're doing. And, and they, hey, tater chip, let it rip. They're going for it. And they, and, and like, what do we do with that one? Well, if we're talking about a believer, then we're talking about a prodigal son. You ever read the story of the prodigal son real close? Was the prodigal son ever not part of the family? Well, he was always a son. So is the story about a son or believer being restored, or is it about an unbeliever coming to faith? Ah, so who are we talking about then? Most people misinterpret the prodigal son. They think it's an evangelism passage. It's not. Prodigal son is about restoration, about regaining that which was lost, but that the son had previously which was what? A relationship to his father. The prodigal son is about restoring a believer, not about unbelievers. The son was always the son, even though he's dead, but he was alienated because of his sin. And so back to your thing, that person might be a prodigal son in rebellion, and we're hoping and praying that they hit a brick wall at some point, like the prodigal son did, and finally comes back to their senses. But let's go one more category. The other category is the person never comes back. So is it possible that a believer can get into rampant sin and never repent? Okay, so if they don't repent, will they still go to heaven? Yes, because you're securing the Messiah. You made a decision. That decision to come to faith of Messiah is a one-time decision that the person makes in their life. It's not something we continue to repeat because that's Catholicism. That's works-based. We don't say, well, as long as you keep believing you're secure in your salvation, you might as well be a, an Arminian at that point in time. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's a position you get at that instant. The instant you believe and convince that Messiah is who he says he is and did the work for you and you believe his promises, boom, you're saved at that point in time. Never be taken away. Can you fall out of fellowship? Of course. Can you die out of fellowship? So the person might go into a lesbian lifestyle, might get a disease because it's rampant in that lifestyle, and die. 
Do we have examples of believers dying out of fellowship? It's all through the Bible. Let's start with King Saul. He died out of fellowship. He committed suicide. He's out of fellowship. I, I expect to see Saul because you know why? He believed in Yahweh, but he was a bad believer. He believed in Yahweh. He just was a bad believer. Are there bad Christians? Yes, there are bad Christians. We're seeing them all over the place. But it doesn't mean they're not saved. Ananias and Sapphira dies out of fellowship, actually dies in physical judgment. They're believers. Corinth Church dies out of fellowship, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, right? So you have literally examples of people, believers, dying out of fellowship, whether in judgment or whatever. So that's another category you have to reserve, that they could just never come back. Yeah, so you look at Robbie Zacharias, I mean, he could be any one of those categories. I mean, the guy was totally messed up, right? You know, have, you know, massage parlors and stuff like that and them doing sexual favors for him. You're thinking, oh my gosh. So could he be lost? Yeah, it's possible, but he could be in these other categories as well. And maybe the cancer was a judgment on him. I don't know. I don't know, but he did this for quite a lot while and with a lot of women. And you're thinking, oh my gosh. Should that shock you? Yeah, and the other one, the other one, the brother is a picture of a self-righteous, legalistic believer who thinks they're better than other people. Yeah. And he, he makes them complain, you never had a, a thing with, uh, you know, a, a feast with me and this and that. And the idea is, there are believers who look down on other believers who fail and think they're better than them, and they don't want them to succeed or repent or come back. They actually want them to stay in the pig pen. They, t- in fact, take very, very much delight in the person staying in the pig pen. Why do you think Jesus put the big brother in there? Why did you think he did that? Because it's a very common thing. Spiritual jealousy is a very common thing, and especially when someone close... In, in like a family falls and they capitalize on that fall. They love it. They take delight in the fall. And so that's, oh, there's a lot of big brothers running around. Yeah, it has ruined those who are trapped in sin. It gives no grace. It's a black and white issue because Calvinists think in black and white terms. And so when someone's in there, they're just going to chalk them off saying they were never saved to begin with because they wouldn't act like that. That is so immature to say something like that. It's Gnosticism to say things like that. And you're right. It is permeated all through Christian culture. Even, even though pastors may not be Calvinists, they'll say Calvinist things like that. And it's like not even thinking through. So let me ask you. So, Hold on. I'll come back to you, Julie. Hold on. So let me make an illustration of this. The Calvinists will use a passage that idolaters, thieves, liars, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Have you heard that passage? Very famous passage. But pay close attention to what it says. Did it say they are not going to be saved? See, the problem is the Calvinists have glossed over the term inherit the kingdom of God. How do you get entrance into the kingdom of God? Believe. Nicodemus, you must be born again. But inheritance is a different thing, isn't it? And inheritance is for who? If I use the word inheritance, then I'm going to write a will, and I'm going to set up an inheritance estate or whatever, and I'm going to give my who the inheritance. My family, 
So anytime you see the word inheritance, it's not referring to unbelievers. It's referring to believers. Only believers can get an inheritance. Now, notice the passage is saying, will not be allowed to have an inheritance, basically. It's not saying, will not enter. It's saying that the believers who practice these things that he enumerates will lose their inheritance. What am I referring to then? Rewards. Back to your person. If a believer continues in a, a, a immoral lifestyle, like lesbian, gay, whatever, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they lose the inheritance. And the inheritance is the reward that the Messiah gives to all believers who overcome. Okay? It's an act of reward. Inheritance is an act of reward. Will there be believers in heaven that have no inheritance? Yes. Will they be in the kingdom? Yes, but they have no inheritance. See, so notice that you have, you have to be very precise in understanding the phrases being used in the scripture. And the Calvinists, back to what Shannon's saying, Shannon, they just gloss over that. They say, inherit the kingdom of God. That must mean salvation. No, it's talking to believers. Only believers can inherit stuff. I can't give an, I'm not going to give an inheritance to a stranger and neither is God. The inheritance actually is what comes from Christ at the Bema seat. You know, is that, it's crazy how they, they, and so people, people, they, uh, you'll hear a pastor quote, bless God, if you're homosexual, you're not going, you're going to hell. That's not true. You're using a passage out of context. You can't say that. He's going to lose rewards. I can say that if they got saved, right? So that's more of a balanced approach. And because people are not balanced, they get into this black and white junk. Irritating. I just, I can't stand it because they do more damage than they do good. Calvinists, are, I, I just, I've had it with them. I've just had it. I can't stand it. I can't stand anyone that won't take the scriptures for what it says. I, I really have a problem. I'm on this close to calling it a cult. I'm this close to calling it a cult. Anyway, I might. I, I've seen so much damage, so much damage, spiritual damage done to people. Okay, go for it, Julie. The what now? Yeah, so the Catholic Church, obviously, <laughs> all messed up, of course, starting on the wrong framework, believes that they, can, they hold salvation, that, that salvation is done through the church, and that, that they have the right, um, when they practice excommunication, to send someone to hell by excommunicating them. And, and that's not true. Now, excommunication is in the Bible, but it means that you're putting the believer out of fellowship until they repent, and then you can welcome them back in fellowship once they repent and get things right. So that's what the whole point of excommunication. It's not to, to pronounce that you're unsaved. It's to put him out into the area of Satan where he's unprotected by the church and let Satan deal with the person and work on them and hopefully bring them back to, to the Messiah and come back into fellowship. So yeah, the whole, that's, that's crazy to pronounce. They, they do that and they've always done that. It's, a, it's so Babylonian, so Babylonian. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. 
Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.